Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Today on this episode, I have my friend, Sean E. I've known Sean basically, I've known you since the first time you got clean. So probably like 10 years, right? Yeah. I've heard you speak multiple times. Like you're a phenomenal speaker. Like, I don't know, ever since I met you, like we just always vibe. I haven't seen you in probably, what, like four years? Yeah. Probably probably four four years, years, you know? Obviously, we keep in touch on social media and stuff. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I know you've been through a lot. Just happened to ask you, and I knew you had, like, you were in the hospital for a little bit, so I didn't know that you had, like, kind of just started getting around. Yep. Where are you from? Where did it all start for you? Well, um, I grew up in Miami. You know, I was born in Virginia, but we moved down to to Miami when I was in second grade. Uh-huh. You know, it all started for me down here, and, you know, I can tell you as, as far as, you know, my— my using goes, the first time I ever used a substance, it was it was alcohol. Mm-hmm. It was nine years old. It was at my sister's sweet 16 birthday party. Remember wow. it perfectly. Her friends gave me some wine coolers. And On the last show, someone was like, yeah, the first thing I ever drink was wine coolers. Like, me too. Yeah. So, you know, nothing glorious. Uh-huh. Um, it was, just, you know, a couple wine coolers. But I remember the feeling of, of fitting in. You know, getting a little tipsy, and I was acting crazy, and her friends were laughing. And the thing is, is I thought they were laughing with me, but later on in life, I realized people were just laughing at me Mm. because of the way that I was acting on a substance. It kind of started from there, but I don't have some, you know, dramatic home life or anything like that. My parents, you know, they did the best they could with what they had. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom is my superhero. My dad, you know, he, he loved his kids. So there was nothing. And my, you know, my dad, he did drink a lot. He was one of the happy drunks. Yeah. You know, he, he was, he, he would just like to drink and. He went to work, drank, came home and. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, anything dramatic there. I've had people tell me, I, you know, that I thrive in chaos. I like the, the chaos of using, using drugs and using substances. It's kind of, you know, a rush to me. Mm-hmm. The high is great, but also like, the consequences, I thrive in the consequences. Like, so I thrive when, like, bad shit happens. Yeah. Excuse my French. I, you know, I do curse a little bit here and there. It's okay. But, um, it's a French show. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. As I grew up, you know, I, you know, I started smoking weed and, and taking ecstasy and doing a lot of drinking. And, you know, all through middle school, high school, I started dealing. It's funny, you know, because I always liked the hustle, too. And I was kind of addicted to that adrenaline rush as well of hustling. And I, I laugh about it and I joke about this with my mom. You know, I first started selling blow pops in middle school. And I remember we used to sell blow pops. We used to sell those uh, those pickled sausages that come in the jars. That's crazy. Yeah, we used to sell those. So, like, you know, it, and then we started selling pre-rolled joints. Mm-hmm. but we would scam people and put oregano in it too. <laughs> you know, so we would do things like that. That's the way that I grew up and took a lot out of my family. 
how I was. You know, I I would was like smoking weed okay when you were younger, or were your parents get mad at you? They didn't accept it at all. My yeah. my parents they grew up in a society where where everything was bad except for alcohol. Alcohol was like a mm-hmm. you know they grew up in we're a West Indian household, and alcohol is kind of like a normal thing. Mm-hmm. The weed wasn't was a no no. You know, it, it progressed. But, you know, my family didn't know that it progressed to to ecstasy and cocaine and stuff like that. I hid that pretty well. I would run away from home because I didn't like the fact that I got in trouble for selling weed or I got in trouble for skipping school. I mean, in 11th grade, I had 72 absences. Mm. You know what I mean? They ended up kicking me out. Like, I mean, I understand why I did the things that I did. I do. It's just the way that I'm wired. It's addiction at its, at its finest if I look back at my history. Funny story, and we were talking about this before. That, um, you know, a, a friend of ours got his medallion last night, and he shared that at, right at the beginning. He said, man, I haven't drank an energy drink in a while, and this is a late meeting, so I had one. Mm-hmm. Now I'm all geeked up on an energy <laughs> drink. So I was driving over here, and I was like, man, I'm thinking about what he said. And I was like, I haven't had one in a long time either. I wonder what that would be like. <laughs> so I got a Red Bull. So now I'm all geeked up on Red Bull. There you go. That's what it is, though. Like, I still have an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. I have an addictive personality. And at the same time, it's like, I'm pretty sure most Americans are addicted to caffeine. Yeah. But I just think as addicts, we kind of take it to the next level. We take it to the next level with everything. You know, it could be a positive thing. Yeah, it could be a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I truly believe that my addictive personality makes me the dedicated employee that I am today mm-hmm. because I'm clean. Yeah. You know, I got clean, and, and I'm fortunate to have gotten clean. Back in 2009, I remember I went to one of my best friends, and I told her, I said, I need help. I had a bunch of pills. She dumped the pills on the floor, crushed them, went on the Internet and looked up a meeting, and, and we went to, you know, a 12-step meeting. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the first time you got clean? That was the first time I got clean. The first time you got clean, like, what led up to that incident? Like, what was, uh, like, employment like? What was, like, your family like at the time? My wife had just left me. You're married. Yes. I think I remember this. Yeah, you're married. My wife had just left me, and and rightfully so. I had a big problem with painkillers. I was using opiates pretty heavily, smoking a ton of weed, and, you know, doing a little bit of coke here and there and stuff. And she really wanted me to stop after we got married. And I just couldn't stop, and I didn't want to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, she decided that she was going to leave. So she left, and I kind of went on a downward spiral, started missing work, started using heavily. Finally, I went to my friend, and I told her, I said, you know, I need I need help. And she looked it up, and she found a 12-step meeting for me to go to, and I went there. She wasn't recovering anything? No, she wasn't she recovering anything. She, she was just a normal normal person. Wow. She took me there. And she dropped me off, and she said, these people are going to help you. Uh-huh. She's like, but I need you to go in there. <laughs> and this is somebody I used with. So it's bad when somebody that you've used with mm-hmm. tells you you got a problem. Yeah. I went in and, and changed my life forever, you know? What was your first experience like, like your first couple months in recovery? My first couple months in recovery were uh, weird. It was a culture shock for me. Were you going to meetings in Broward or Dade? Dade. Okay. Back on track. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was a culture shock for me because, one, I had never been around people that smoked crack or shot heroin. So I'd never been around people, you know what I mean? So everyone was sharing a meeting. Everyone's sharing meetings, and I'm like, I'm only taking pills. Do I really belong here? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, like, I had that doubt in my mind. 
Like, do I really belong here because I'm only taking pills mm -hmm. and I'm only doing a little bit of coke? I was like, these people are like shooting up and living under bridges. And later on, I, I realized that I wasn't the right place. But, uh, you know, my first couple months... There was skepticism. Yeah, there was skepticism. And, you know, I met a few people, you know, I met a, a few good people. Mm -hmm. And then they started taking me out and we went out to eat. Like, we would go play bingo at the casino. You know what I mean? Like, we would do all this fun stuff, and they were showing me I could do fun stuff clean. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't have I didn't have to be at the club partying mm -hmm. to have fun. You know, we'd go out to eat, and, you know, you know, we'd go yeah. out and eat 2 in the morning. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how, um, like, as an addict, using was the only thing that was fun. And whenever I would hang out with people who, like, were normal— they would be like at a party or whatever. Like this is like it took so much for me to have fun. Like fun was only like robberies, you know, getting chased, like doing something grimy or like hardcore using. And then I got clean, and it's like I had so much fun at IHOP. Yeah, like you know what I mean. It's exactly. like it's like dude, I would go to IHOP for three hours and die laughing and just people watch and just talk in the parking lot exactly. and fucking play stupid games and. I don't know. It's like when I got clean, like I started having so much fun doing such like stupid things. Yep. You know, and the, that's the one good thing about, you know, being in recovery is that I found life again. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm able to uh, to stay clean and just have fun. But, you know, unfortunately, like I stayed clean for two years and I used the day after getting two years clean. Wow. This was, two th yeah, 2011. So you got clean in 2011. Yeah. And then two years later, you used. Yeah. And this is the relationship. Yeah. I remember this. You remember the relationship. Yeah. You're like obsessed with this girl. Yeah. We were together and she said, NA is not for me. She left NA and I said, I'm uh, okay. Maybe I don't need NA either. Uh-huh. So the day after getting two years clean, I used with her. Wow. We went and got drunk. Yeah. Um, nothing crazy. Yeah. Nothing, <laughs> nothing crazy. Um, That's like the thing is that people are always like, do you feel like if you relapse, like you would just, if you drink, you would just go back to using? I'm like, it's it's a process. It is. For most people. I, I think for me it would be a short process. It was a short process for but, me. But at the same time, it's like uh, complete absence is the only thing that has ever worked. And it's like uh, when you have a fucked up relationship with drugs, you don't go get coffee with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like when you're like in a fucked up scenario where you're a drug addict, like, I don't know, like people always ask me that. Like, so you think if you had one drink, you would like your whole life would go to fall apart? And I'm like, in an essence, yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't be like instantaneous. Like I would drink and I'd be fucking under a bridge, but it would be the beginning. Funny story. We were just at, we were just at a comedy show and uh, it was a bunch of my friends in recovery. And the waitress came up to us. Did you guys like a, a bottle of wine or mm -hmm. or something like that? And I, I said, I was like, sweetheart, you can bring the bottle of wine, but we'll all be smoking crack by the end of the night. For sure. And she just looked at me like, what? And you know, and the thing is, is I can joke. I, I like, yeah. You know, like I'm a clown, mm -hmm. and I will joke about the fact that I'm in recovery. I don't care who knows. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I don't care. Like. One, I'm very open about being in recovery because I want to help people. I'm very open about it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I'm very, you know, I want to help people. And I don't use my recovery as, as saying that I'm better than somebody, but I can help. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've experienced in that issue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a matter of, you know, us being able to help people, helping mm-hmm. the next person. You know, that's big for me. But, you know, but back to the, the whole the whole relapse thing. Like, yeah, I relapsed. And, and quickly after, I was, I was smoking weed with her. And quickly after, we were finding Molly and popping Molly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, quickly after, here comes the Coke. And then all of a sudden, we're like homeless living in motels. And not necessarily homeless, but, you know, Fortunately, my family helped me pay to live in a motel for for a month. Mm-hmm. I was living with my best friend, the one who helped me get into meeting, into my first meeting. Just for people listening, that's homeless. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah. It's, true. It's, so I, I understand that you had a place to live and not living outside. You know, sometimes, uh, like you know, we work in treatment, so it's like sometimes you ask a client, like, do you have any housing issues? And they're like, no. And then you'd be like, where do you live? You're like, well, I don't really like. Like, dog, if you don't have an address, you're homeless, you yeah. know? <laughs> I was homeless. All right, all right, you cleared that up for me. But, <laughs> um, and, and you, you don't have a place to get mail. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Shit, I never thought about that. <laughs> but uh, thanks for clearing that one up. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, I was staying with my, my friend that helped me, helped me get clean the first time. And she knew I was using. She thought I was okay. And then she saw me progressively get worse again. And then one day her and, and my ex got in a fight. And my ex was like, we're leaving, we're moving out. And I was like, okay, because mm-hmm. I'd just do whatever she said. And that was my addiction. I was addicted to a human being. And you do anything for an, something that you're addicted to. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, fine. And, you know, we, we moved out and then ended up getting an apartment. And it, it turned into this whole thing. And she'd leave, come back, leave, come back. And I'd just keep using, overdosing. This, going to the hospitals, getting Baker acted, stuff like that, suicide attempts, just all to get her attention to get her to come back. You know, it was it was a sick, twisted cycle. Now that I'm clean and I've been away from that relationship and away from that situation for a long time, I'm grateful for that situation mm-hmm. because it created who I am today. I, I'm in a healthy relationship. I'm actually getting married. Congrats. Thank you. Shout out to her. That's, that's my, like, ace, mm-hmm. my number one. Oh, that whole situation created everything. Like, she would fight with my mom, and we would move out of my mom's house because she wanted to leave, so I left, mm-hmm. you know? And, like, today, like, I have that relationship back with my mother. I have a relationship with my sister. You know, unfortunately, my dad didn't get to see me clean before he died of leukemia. Wow. I was using, but I was using successfully to, to be there for him while mm-hmm. he was dying. And I remember I was talking to him. You know, I was, I was taking a lot of Xanax at the time. And it was like the last meaningful conversation I had with him. I told him, I was like, man, I was like, I was like Dad, I'm going to get clean. And I'm going to start working in treatment. And I was like, I'm telling you, I'm going to do it. And he was like, all right. He's like, but I want you to know something. You're not going to be 36 forever. And that was the last meaningful thing he said to me. After he passed, probably like maybe a month after that, I went on a run. So you get clean in 2011 for the first time? 2009. 2009. Yes. Okay, so you get clean in 2009. You stay clean for two years up until 2011. Mm-hmm. Then you and this girl relapse. Yeah. And then your dad dies of leukemia what year? Like four years. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I was I was out for s- almost seven years. You used for seven years after the first time you got clean for two? Yeah. That's crazy for me because it's like, it's because- Six years. Six, six years. years. I yeah, got clean, so, yeah. so it's like, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I knew you when you got clean the first time. 
we got clean around the same time. Yeah. And then, like, you know, when people leave the fellowship, like, I also don't want to, like, be the the guy calling you every day saying, like, don't you want to come back to the cult? You know, because I think that makes people not want to come back. But it's like, you know, sometimes I don't want to judge. And it's like, dude, if you think that you can do a good job and, like, live a normal life without the 12-step program, I don't want to, like, whatever. But I do f- like there was someone recently who left the program and I called them I'm like, hey, look, I'm just calling you to check in to see how you're doing because I know you haven't gone to meetings for a long time and like you're drinking now. You know, just like a friendly, hey, what's going on? Because sometimes I feel like people leave the fellowship and no one reaches out to them and they think like people don't care. Yeah. But it's like, like we do care. Like I care. Sometimes I just don't know how to go about being like, hey, bro, is your life unmanageable? Because if you if it is, you can come back. Because then I think people get kind of defensive and whatever. Yeah. How did you feel? Like, I got were people s- reaching out to you saying, come back to meetings? At first, yeah. Back in 2011 when I first relapsed. Yeah. For like a couple months after. And then it stopped? Yeah. Like a certain group of people were like reaching out to me constantly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, telling me, come back, come back, come back. You know, she's not worth it. Come back. <laughs> I got defensive. I got pissed off. And I was like, I'm not coming back. Fuck you guys. Mm-hmm. You know? And like, that's that's what it was for me. And um, then later on, would you like, were you mad that people weren't still reaching out? Or yeah, oh, then, then I got mad because no one cared anymore. <laughs> then, yeah. then I got, yeah. you, you know what I mean? So that, that I just, my disease gave me another reason to, mm-hmm. to say, to say you, know, you know, screw you guys. But there, there was a time right before my, my dad, like well, while my dad was sick, I had gone to treatment. I was in this little 30-day program. Mm-hmm. We were allowed to have our cell phones and we were allowed to have our computers. I had mm-hmm. I had people throwing shit over the fence to me and mm-hmm. it was, is what it is. I was in that program and the, like, the day I got there, I found out my dad had leukemia. So I got out and I continued on prescription drugs. I was abusing him, so I, you know, of course I'm using. I was picking up key tags at meetings, mm-hmm. 60 days, 90 days. Picking up all my key tags, got a medallion high. Wow. Yeah, got a medallion high. I think I remember all this. Yeah, I got a medallion. I was high. Picked up 18 months. My sponsor gave me an 18-month medallion, and I was so high. I was like, basically, I couldn't stand, and I could barely talk. I was slurring all my words. What what did your sponsor say? Everyone at the meeting was, was, like, asking him, is Sean okay? What's going on with Sean? And he was like, you know what's going on? Like, everyone knows what's going on with him. Mm-hmm. He just, he told people, allow me my process. Wow. You know what I mean? And, like, because he did that, and he's my sponsor to this day, and I love him forever. Wow. They didn't, like, bombard me. They just love me. Yeah. And here's the thing is, like, when people are, like, judging people at meetings that are high or people that pick up key tags high, I don't know. It don't bother me. Yeah. It's not like... Oh, they're lying about their clean time. Da, da, da. It's like, dude, like that person is really sick and they might be lying to themselves. And like, imagine wanting the whole program, just not being able to do the not using part. And like sometimes in, like in the literature, it says like um, abstinence isn't like a sign of success. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I would hope that people get clean eventually. Just because some people are, I know some people that are not using that are like, I want nothing to do with them. At the same time, it's like, dude, some people really struggle with not using. Yeah. And some people really struggle with gambling. Some people really struggle with women. Some people really struggle struggle with shopping. So it's like, you're going to struggle with one of those things. And just because you got 
uh, pretty good at one of those things doesn't mean you're better than or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, at meetings, we do have clean time requirements. Like clean time is important. But at the same time, it's like, dude, when people are high, it's like, in my opinion, like they might be the most important person there. And you know, I used to beat down people like that at meetings. You remember, I was, yeah. I'd run around like you're preaching at people. Yeah, you're really preaching in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> you know what I mean? And I would run around preaching at people. Today, like I, I try to love up on people, man. Mm-hmm. I, I just try to, you know, like if I see someone that's high at a meeting, good for you. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're at a meeting. Good mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. It took a lot to get there. Like, I would go to the meetings and literally smoke crack in the bathroom and then mm-hmm. go into the meeting, raise my hand, and share. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would share, I would, like, quote literature and stuff. It would be no different than someone who really struggles with reading, raising their hand to go read one of the readings. Yeah. And it's like, well, what's the other alternative to pretend that, like, you're you're good at reading and just sit there and not, like, do anything about it? Yeah. You know, it's like, dude, at least you had the balls to come to a meeting. One of the reasons why I think I've been able to stay clean long is because, like, I've learned to just focus on myself. Yeah. It's like, dude, like, like if someone's high or someone, like, stole money or someone did something fucked up, it's like, thank God I didn't do that today. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I don't know. I think that sometimes in the— you know, 12 step, any type of group setting that happens. So it's not just meetings, all right? Mm-hmm. Like any type of group setting, it's really easy to start looking at what everyone else is doing wrong. I still do it. I keep it to myself now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like now I, I kind of quietly just sit in the not back. Not trying and, to police the whole Yeah, place. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it's not my place. Mm-hmm. It's not my place. If somebody wants to learn about it, I'll teach them about it. But mm-hmm. um, I, that's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sponsor somebody for uh, that. This guy, Martin, he's the man. He used to always say, you guys are all my teachers. Some of you teach me what to do. Some, Some of you teach, teach me what not, not to do. do. Yeah. You know, it's just like a beautiful saying where it's like, you know, even the people that aren't doing something, you have something to learn from them. Yeah. All right. So you find out your dad has leukemia. You're in a treatment center abusing pain meds and other meds, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, put together fake clean time. Pick up an 18-month medallion. And then what happens? My dad died between the year and the 18 months. Okay. So right after I got the 18-month medallion, I knew everyone knew I was high at that point. Mm -hmm. And I was like, so there's no point in me coming back. So I just left. I went on a run. And the crazy thing is, is I lived across the street from my dealer. So I could just walk across the street and get what I wanted. Beautiful. Not only that, I've known him for years, so he would just give it to me and be like, yeah, you can pay me later. Okay. Mm -hmm. And like I could run up a tab. That was like a beautiful thing for me. After my dad died, I don't know, like I said, maybe it was like a month after he died or so, I went on, on my last run. I was just, I was partying for like, you know, I was I was doing a lot of coke for, you know, maybe three days, four days. I hadn't slept. I maybe passed out for a few hours, but not really slept. I was actually, you know, getting some stuff from, from this older lady, and uh, I was at her house, and I was doing so much coke that my nose started bleeding. And she was like, hold on, gets me a tissue. And she's like, you can't do any more Coke here and hands me a pipe. And I was like, oh, shit. So I and I at that point, like, I just wanted to keep getting high. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hit the pipe and and it just it went downhill from there. Yeah. 
It's kind of crack is so fucked. Yeah, it is. It is <laughs> so bad because because that story you said like a hundred people have came on this podcast and said the same one because it's like they make a joke like BC like before crack. Yep, and like it really does alter your life. There is a living life before you smoke crack, and there's a living life after you smoke crack. And after you smoke crack, you will never be the same. Exactly. I was asking someone the other day because someone someone was in the car with us and he's like, what's the difference between crack and heroin or whatever, crack and dope or whatever? I was like, there's something like evil about crack. And the other guy next to me was like, there really is. There you know? is, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't, I feel dirty. I feel like so subhuman. It's, it's just bad shit. juju, you know what I mean? It, and the people you run, it's like, there's just something fucked up really fucked up about it you know it brings yeah. out the worst of the worst in human beings it's just like oh, man it sucks yeah 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 so yeah. like when you were like yeah and then i smoked crack and then, and then the, it was downhill yeah <laughs> it's like that yeah, was and then, it. yeah like the worst part is i had like and it's like we already thought we were at the bottom of the hill so yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. yeah it's like let's go a little lower mm -hmm. you know i ended up hanging out in this in this hotel room down in down in hialeah you know i had been awake for so long got in a little bit of a psychosis there and thought the shadows were out to get me, and mm -hmm. ended up trying to shoot the shadows with a gun, and then to to try and save myself or kill myself, I took a, a full bottle of Xanax, 90 pills, hmm. and I took the whole bottle, chugged that with some liquor, and then lit the hotel room on fire. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. So let me paint a picture. Are you wearing clothes or not? No. <laughs> I don't know why crack makes us also take your clothes off. So you're naked, shooting at shadows in a hotel room, yeah. and then you take a bottle of 90 Xanax, which should kill anybody, yeah. and then you you lit the hotel room on fire? Yeah, apparently I lit the comforter of the bed. Mm -hmm. I lit that on fire, and then it caught the caught the bed. And you did this like to, to like just kill yourself? I'm not going to say her name, but I was actually the person we were talking about uh -huh. right before we started this podcast. I was on the phone with her when I did that. Wow. I said, they're coming to get me. They're outside. And I just lit. Wow. She said, I just lit it on fire. And uh, and I remember I remember when, when I, it was going black. And I said, this just has to end. Mm -hmm. And I woke up. And I remember waking up in the hospital. And I was handcuffed to the bed. Two cops were standing over me, two Hialeah PD officers. I looked around. I saw my mom and my sister and my aunt, you know, the look on their face looking at me through the window because the cops wouldn't let them in to see me. I saw the look on their faces, and I finally, you know, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And I looked around. as a real, You know, I was like, I'm handcuffed. Someone's finally going to save me for myself. And I went back to sleep. Wow. And I woke so how up. Do they, what's the story? How do they find you? The sprinkler system went off. Sprinkler system went off. The sprinkler system went off. Apparently, the the wall of the hotel room caught on fire. Mm -hmm. It got the next ho it got the next room over. Mm -hmm. Cluster. And they pumped your stomach. Yeah. Well, apparently I threw up. So apparently, I th I, yeah. Apparently I threw up. Mm -hmm. So, but they found me unconscious, and the, it was actually the people who run the hotel dragged me out. Wow. So yeah, that was that was my last day using. That was November. 7th 2017 you've been clean since yep that's so cool yeah the day so that's why november 8th 2017 is my clean date that's cool yeah what has been coming back been like i got my sponsor the sponsor that i have now i got him and while i was in treatment i went to treatment after um as soon as i got out of jail mm -hmm. i went straight to treatment i was like i'm going to treatment got a lawyer i told the lawyer I said i'm going to treatment he's like good go 
Um, went to treatment. While I was in treatment, I got my sponsor. I called him, and I told him what was going on, and he made me write recovery and relapse out by hand hmm. every day wow. while I was in treatment. Steve Burdick, rest in peace, he listened to recovery and relapse every single night on repeat when he went to sleep. He did that for like his, the whole time he's been cleaning. It's crazy. Oh, wow. But, yeah, I mean, that's a cool assignment. Yeah. So he made me do that. I got out. I worked steps. I got to step four, and then I said, you know what? This isn't really for me. And so I stopped working steps, got a new sponsor, switched over to him. So when you switched in your mind, are you thinking because it's the sponsor, or did you uh, like consciously know it's because you have an issue with the force that, that you don't want to face some stuff. I, I think it was, it was, I just didn't want to face the force. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, I'm coming up in five years clean. I'm still chasing a force that. Mm -hmm. I just started over because I got a new sponsor. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I asked somebody that previously sponsored me to sponsor me, and I'm starting over now. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been through four sponsors in four years. Unfortunately, that one sponsor, he died, you know, from COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, may he rest in rest peace. Rest in peace. Yeah. You know, you always talked about the whole package. He did. Yeah, so. Yeah, he sponsored both of us at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. remember. Man, I have so much love for that man. And when he died, you know, it was just like, I don't know, sometimes you don't realize, like, the effect people have on your life until they die. Mm -hmm. And when he died, it's like, all I kept thinking was, like, like, I wonder if he knew, like, how much he had helped me. It's not just that he's also helped me. It's that he's helped so many people, dedicated his whole life to the 12 Steps, was going to meetings, like, no matter what for years, like, in a wheelchair, with the cane. You know, I just have, like, a lot of admiration for for that man, you know. It was rough when he died. Like, I didn't think it would, like, affect me, but because he, he sponsored me for, like, two years, I think. Man, it, like, really sucked, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was hard for me, too. It was hard yeah. for me. It was really close with him. Yeah, really, you were a lot closer with him than I was. Yeah, we were really close. So it was definitely hard. It was like losing a father figure again. Yeah. Then I got sick shortly after he passed. Mm hmm You know? What was it like getting clean and back in the fellowship? Because I know, like, a lot of people struggle with that. I have so many friends that had clean time and, like, went out, and they don't want to come back. They, like, oh, people are going to judge. Like, I had one friend that I'm like, yo, you want to go to 12-step tonight? They're like, no, nah, I don't want to see everybody. I was like, bro, that was, like, eight years ago. You would go there and not even know anybody. Yeah, I know. And it's like they really think that when they walk back in the room, everyone's going to be like, oh, my God, where have you been? Like, bro, no, like, and it's kind of fucked up, but it's like, bro, no one even knows who you are, you yeah. know, because, like, the fellowship moves at a fast pace. There's always, like, new people come in. Yeah. People with clean time stop going or they move or something. So it's like, you know, years have passed and they still have this idea that, like, everyone's gossiping about them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I had the same feeling, too. I was I was afraid to go back. I was I was mm -hmm. I was afraid to go back to certain meetings. I was afraid to go back to certain clubhouses because I didn't want to see that crowd. But when I went back, it was all love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people that go out don't understand is that like the real ones will love you. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's the fake ones that are gonna talk shit and blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. But like you said, like there's people that that have what we want, and there's people that have what we don't want. Yeah. And, and you just got to separate the two. And it's like, dude, I've been cleaning 14 years. I can't even remember ever hearing someone be like, oh, so-and-so relapsed. Good. You know, like, like yeah. it's never like that. You know, yeah. it might be like someone saying like, oh, I knew they were going to relapse. Yeah. 
But like, like maybe, maybe they did. You know what I mean? It's like maybe we were acting in a way that like looked like relapse behavior, you know? And maybe they were taking our inventory. I would say 99.9% of people are like hoping other people relapse or glad that they relapse. Most addicts wouldn't wish addiction on their worst enemy. Exactly. So they might be a little judgmental and like say something kind of like, hey, what are you going to do differently this time? Or like they might say like some slick shit. But it's not out of, I hope you fucking go back out. It's like more of like an arrogant way of trying to get you to stay, if anything. Yeah. There was one guy who kept asking me that, what are you going to do differently? Mm-hmm. Kept asking me that every time I would come back. because. But it's it, like, if he didn't care, he wouldn't even talk to you. Yeah. In those six years, I picked up 36 white key tags. Mm. And I have them all still. I, I save all my key tags. The last time he asked me, I remember, was at that meeting in North Miami, and he came up to me and said, what are you going to do different this time? And I said, man, I don't know. Every other time I had an answer for him. Mm-hmm. This time I didn't have an answer for him, and I'm still here. That's cool. Because I didn't, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just I'm letting predecessors take me forward. Yeah, well, it's also like not giving a full of shit answer. It's better to be like, I don't know if you really don't know, as opposed to being like, this is what I think he wants me to say. Yeah, exactly. It was it was me trying to just, it was me trying to be authentic. and Because mm-hmm. I put on a mask for so long. Mm-hmm. I, I could be anything you want me to be. I can fit into any group you want me to fit into. I can be the street kid. I can be the, you know, I can fit into whatever you want. Because mm-hmm. addicts are chameleons. We can adapt to any situation. You put us in Alaska, we'll find a crack rock. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's that's just the way it is, man. For and sure. The consequences of my actions sucked. They sucked. I'm no longer ashamed of what I did. I'm not. I, I don't like the fact that I caused harm and pain to other people. But at the same time, like, my actions created who I am today. And, like, I'm the one thing I am is, is I'm, I'm proud of who I am today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm definitely happy with what I see in the mirror because there was a point in time in my using in that six-year stretch where I actually covered the mirror in my bathroom because I was so ashamed of looking at myself. Yeah, uh, for years I used to always get ready with the lights off because I just didn't want to see myself. I just hated the reflection of myself. I hated pictures of myself. Like, yeah. I just couldn't look at who I was. It's scary. It's scary to think that that's how we thought. Yeah, and it's like, even as a kid, it's like, sometimes it makes me, like, I put this picture up on my, like, social media of, like, me as a kid. It actually makes me sad because it's like, I was probably in, like, third grade, and I hated pictures. Even in third grade, I had, like, a blowout, and I was, like, dressed all nice. And all the other kids I was with that day were, like, wearing, like, a little kid shirt, you know, like a a kid, like a shirt a kid would wear. I was wearing, like, something nice. Even in third grade, when someone took a picture of me, my first thought was, like, to try to look cool. Like, I thought smiling wasn't cool. Like, I wouldn't smile in the picture, you know? And it makes me sad because it's like, even in third grade, I had stopped becoming a kid. Yeah. You know, I had lost that part of me that, like, could be myself and be goofy or silly or whatever. Because, like, when you have older friends, like, that's not cool. Yeah. You know? As an adult, I had to learn how to, like, rekindle that, you know, feeling of, like, being a child. You know? being mm-hmm. Having fun. And, like, that's what, like, hanging out at IHOP was about. Yeah, You know, it's like, to me, that was like so important because it's like, I hadn't just hung out with people and laughed in so long. Yeah. My whole life was about like earning your trust, then making up some lies about who I was, and then setting up a way to fuck you over. 
Yep. And then hoping you didn't do that to me. Exactly. <laughs> you know? That's how we lived. Mm-hmm. That's how we lived. Fortunately, we don't have to anymore. Yeah. I'm glad, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for everything that I went through in mm-hmm. life. Like I said, it, it made me who I am. So tell me about what happened uh, with COVID. Okay, so COVID, that's a story in itself. Prior to this happening to you, were, what were your thoughts on COVID? And I don't ever talk about COVID on the show. I just think it's so, it, like, it, it really was, is, like, crazy to me. Okay, so prior to COVID, my thoughts on COVID, I, I did think COVID was serious. Well, I, we I, work in treatment, so we, <laughs> it's different. Some people are like, bro, I don't give a fuck about COVID. I'm like, all right, bro, you, you don't work in a medical facility with people getting flown in all over the country. And exactly. if, if anybody has pre-existing conditions, it's us, Yeah, you know, and it's like, uh, we have nurses and doctors and and clients and they're detoxing and their symptoms look like COVID anyways. And like test results could be positive or negative. And if one person's positive, they infect the whole community. So it's like what we went through with working in treatment and COVID is fucking insane. Yeah. And it's like, dude, if you worked at the bank, it might not have affected you at all. Yeah. You know, if you worked as a fucking teller with like glass and you just could just do drive through, like you might have just had a regular fucking past two years. Mm-hmm. When you work in healthcare, like it was fucked up for us. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. But I took it seriously. Okay. You know, I mean, I, you know, I didn't get vaccinated. Whatever. That's that's the whole thing right there. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I now I look at it and I should have. <laughs> Wait, so now you think you should have? I, now I think I should have, yeah. I should have got my head out of my ass and... And, and got vaccinated. And, and got vaccinated. Wow, that's that's crazy to hear because it's like, I know nurses work in COVID units that refuse to get vaccinated. So do I. And I'm sure we both do. And I know people who work in COVID units side by side with that same nurse and they're like, that bitch is crazy. She needs to get vaccinated, you know? So it's really crazy to see how it's like, because oftentimes if we disagree, it's like, well, this person's uneducated and doesn't know the facts. But with COVID, it's like you see people who are educated, smart, work in healthcare, know the facts and still totally disagree. Yeah. Or think that like one person is like totally fucking out of there. It's interesting. It is. It is. It is. You know, after our friend died of COVID. Yeah, I, I, you know, I was, I, I said, wow, you know, that was a big shock to me, and literally the week after we buried him, I tested positive. So I, I called into work, I let him know, hey, I'm positive, I, you know, I, obviously I can't come in. And you have symptoms. I had a, like a little bit of a fever and I had a little bit of a cough and a runny nose. Mm-hmm. Me and my my fiance went to CVS, we got some vitamins and stuff, and we basically like hunkered down in the house because she had. Tested positive as well. Yeah, you lived together. Yeah. Apparently, she said I slept. I don't remember anything after the CVS trip. Wow. So, apparently, she said I slept for three days or two days. And then she woke me up and and we went to the... My sister said I called her. I don't remember calling my sister. I was texting everybody at work, responding to emails. No, I don't remember. Don't remember anything. I had to actually go back through all my old emails to see Mm -hmm. what I sent, just in case I sent something stupid. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, you know, I went to the urgent care and they rushed me to the ER. I was, you know, in complete kidney failure. You know, they had to intubate me. I was on dialysis. Mm. It was bad. I was in a, a chemically induced coma for like a month or so. 
A month. Yeah, it was a little. Oh my bit. god. Yeah, it was a little bit there, and then um. Were you on a ventilator? Yeah, I was on a ventilator. I got the scar right here. Wow. So the I didn't even know what the f I thought a ventilator was like a thing that goes over your no. face and just like breathes air, <laughs> but it pumps your lungs for you, right? Yeah. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Wow. So to be on a ventilator, they have to. Well, there's different. They can go in through your mouth, and but they they went in through here. They went in through there. Yeah. I got a picture. I'll show you the picture. How did right you there. feel? Because people say, oh, people on ventilators die because your lungs stop working. And then, and like, when you get off the ventilator, your lungs don't have the ability to work again. Is that true? They told me I'm at, like, three-fourths working on my left side. Mm -hmm. My right side's fine, but my left side has some damage into it. I'm going to re pulmonary rehab for that, but they didn't think I was going to make it. You know, fortunately, like, I pulled through, and, and I pulled through, and a lot of people prayed for me. And a lot of doctors came through, and I had good medical care, and—, and mm -hmm. I was blessed. Wow. Blessed to come through. Like, you know, there was a point, I know my sister was saying, she didn't know if she should call the hospital to see how I was doing or call the funeral home to set up arrangements. I'm blessed to, to be here. And, and and when was this, in January? This, I, I tested positive on uh, August 14th, and then I, I left the hospital on January 5th. I was in the hospital for like 120 days. Oh, my God. What was that like, being in recovery? Because I'm sure they're trying to give you meds. Every it was 40 seconds. Yeah, you know, it was hard. It was hard. I did take some medication, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. there, I did. I had major, you know, there was a lot of issues. So I had, I had to take some medication, whatever. Mm -hmm. But once again, that was under doctor's yeah. supervision and stuff like that. I have an issue with my leg. They gave me some painkillers to mm -hmm. when I left the hospital. I failed the script, and then I gave the bottle to my sister. And I said, here, you hold on to this. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm on the floor crying in pain, do not give me one. I haven't taken one. Like, I have, I have every right in the book. Like, I have every excuse mm -hmm. to go into a doctor's office and ask for medication and get it. And I'm, I'm not going to do it. And, and I'm not saying that I'm trying to be the martyr or, or somebody's sick that shouldn't get seek help. Or mm -hmm. I get professional help and, and do it properly. Yeah. I know, you know, I know plenty of people that have had to take medication while in recovery, mm -hmm. and they did it properly. Yeah, and it's like um, I think half the battle is not underestimating the surgery. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I've had surgery a couple of times, and it's like I call my sponsor, call my, you know, NA friends or recovery friends, tell them what's going on. Every time I've denied the pain meds. But this one time I denied pain meds, and they gave it to me anyways because they kept insisting that I was going to need them. I took them home. And my friend came over and he's like, what's this? I'm like, I don't know. They gave it to me anyways. It was like, in my opinion, like little shitty perks, you know? Yeah. And he took them and threw them away. Like this is how people relapse. Because what if you don't have that group of friends yep. like that and then you're at home and you're alone and you haven't gone to meetings in a long time. You're staring and, at that bottle. And, and you're like, fuck it, I'll take one. Yeah. And then you're by yourself and you take two. Because I have friends in recovery who were like, I had a surgery. I had the pain meds. Didn't think I abused them. And then months later, I started to think, and I was like, I abused them, you know? So it's like, it's a slippery slope. It is. You know? It is. So, yeah, I was I was fortunate and blessed to, mm -hmm. to be able to stay away from the medications and be in the mindset. So I always try to ask people, you know, like someone who's relapsed and came back and, and has gone through, like, so much and recovered, it's really hard to get clean again multiple times. What do you think is, like, some of the factors that, hindered you from staying clean the first time? Closed-mindedness. I think I think that I stopped thinking that I needed the help. 
Mm-hmm. I, I pulled myself away. Mm-hmm. I pulled myself while well, I was following someone out. The relationship. But mm-hmm. I pulled myself. I'm not blaming anyone. I pulled myself mm-hmm. away from everyone and everything. I, you know, I stopped going to meetings, stopped calling my sponsor, stopped working steps, stopped fellowshipping. I stopped all that stuff, and then I was at the edge, and finally I just got cut from the herd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, that's that's what happens soon. It's a good way to put it. That's kind of, yeah, I mean— that's really how it happens, you know. Um, people always ask me, like, you know, are you scared of relapse? And um, I always tell people, like, I'm scared of relapse the way, like, someone who's married is scared of divorce. You know, where it's like, we all know that if you're married, there's a possibility of divorce. But it's not going to happen overnight. Usually when someone gets divorced, it's like years of, like, not maintaining their relationship and years of, like, you know, miscommunication and yeah. distrust and and whatever. When it does happen, it sucks, but it's not based off like an instantaneous thing more times than not. You yeah. Know? And um, it's something that needs to be tended constantly. What else is going on with you? What, what's uh, what's next for you in uh, this journey that you're on? Nothing. You know what? Nothing much. Like I'm, One, I'm looking forward to getting married. You know what I mean? Awesome. Um, totally stoked for that. Save up and buy a house. I, I want to do adult stuff. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I want to do fun stuff. And I want to do stuff for myself. Do stuff for my family. You know what I mean? I, I just I want to live life. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm 41 years old and I'm finally living, especially after coming through the whole, you know, COVID thing. Yeah, that's crazy. That was that was tough. So, like I said, I'm I'm just blessed and I'm I'm living life to the mm-hmm. fullest right now. That's awesome, man. Hey, well, congrats on five years clean, dude. Yeah, almost there. Almost. Almost five years. Almost. Okay. Almost. Yeah. When's your five? When your anniversary? Uh, November. November eighth. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, my birthday is November 9th, so I remember that. Okay. Hey, well, I appreciate you coming to the show. I love you very much. It's good to see you. And I really do appreciate you making time to come do this. All right. Thank you, bro. Thank you for having me. Love you, man. Love you too, bro. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833 833- nine 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 one eight seven seven to speak to a specialist this show is sponsored by united recovery project a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility you can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. recovery